everybody. Welcome to this special audio-only edition of the Banyan Books podcast. Today, we are in conversation with Martine Prechtel. My name is Ross McKeechee. And before we get into Martine's formal introduction, I would just like to acknowledge that although we have people joining from around the world in the Banyan Books community, the physical location of Banyan Books and Sound in Kitsilano and Vancouver is on the traditional unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Now, Banyan Books is celebrating its 50th birthday this year. That's 50 years as Canada's spiritual and healing resource, a local independent bookstore. And just letting everybody know that by purchasing uh, from Banyan Books, you're supporting all kinds of wonderful free programming just like this event today. Now, you can go to our website to make any purchases, banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com. Or you can order by phone, or you can go in in person if you're in Vancouver in Kitsilano at 4th and Dunbar, open seven days a week. Now, our honored guest today, Martine Prechtel. As an avid student of Indigenous eloquence, innovative language, and thought, Martine Prechtel is a writer, artist, and teacher who, through his work, both written and spoken, hopes to promote the subtlety irony, and pre-modern vitality hidden in any living language. A half-blood Native American with a Pueblo Indian upbringing, he left New Mexico to live in the village of Santiago Atitlan, Guatemala, eventually becoming a full member of the Tsutujil Mayan community there. For many years, he served as a principal in that body of village leaders, responsible for piloting the young people through the meanings of their ancient stories in the rituals of adult rites of passage. Once again, now residing in his beloved New Mexico, Prechtel teaches at his international school, Bolad's Kitchen. Through an immersion into the world's lost seeds and sacred farming, forgotten music, magical architecture, ancient textile making, metal smithing, the making and using of tools, musical instruments, and food, and the deeper meanings of the origins of all these things in the older stories, in ancient texts, and by teaching through the traditional use of riddles. Prechtel hopes to inspire people of every mind and way to regrow and revitalize real culture and to find their own sense of place in the sacredness of a newly found daily existence in love with the natural world. Martine Prechtel's previous works, his previous books, they include, and these are all available at Banyan, Secrets of the Talking Jaguar, Long Life, Honey in the Heart, The Disobedience of the Daughter of the Sun, Stealing Benefacio's Roses, the Unlikely Peace at Kuchumakik, and The Smell of Rain on Dust, Grief and Praise. Today he's here with us speaking about his latest book, which is called Rescuing the Light, Quotes from the Oral Teachings of Martine Prechtel. And I want to let everybody know that Martine has agreed graciously to do a second interview with us about his other newly released book, which is called The Mare and the Mouse, 
stories of my horses, which is volume one in a three-part uh, series. Now that interview will, will be recording privately, Martin and I, and we'll be posting that. So anybody who's interested, uh, keep your eyes out. You can, you can look on any of the podcasting sites, search Banyan Books in Conversation. So Spotify, um, Google Music, or sorry, YouTube Music now, Apple Music, or you can Google it um, online, look up Banyan Books in Conversation podcast. And you can subscribe and that will be posted after we record it on August 1st. So his latest book, Rescuing the Light, I'll just read what Coleman Barks, author of The Essential Rumi and Rumi Soul Fury, has to say about his latest book, Rescuing the Light. He says, this is a very powerful soul growth book, one of the most powerful in recent years. The ideas here for renewal and reorganizing are so fresh and new that they quicken the taste buds and put an expectant readiness in the legs. Martin Prechtel, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Thank you. It's good to hear your voice talking away there so beautifully. I hope I live up to what you said there. Oh, well, I'm sure that you will. Thank you for joining us. Now, this is a a beautiful book from taken from your quotes from your oral teachings. And at the end of the book, you tell the story of, of the students and their note-taking and how this book came to be. I'm wondering if you can fill us in a little bit on that story. Oh, yeah. Well, that was a, my way of trying to thank them. Well, what happened with this book is Rescuing the Light is that during all of the you know very hard times for people throughout the world, uh, the COVID-19 and... Uh, you know, all of the death and shutdowns and cultural back and forth and, and previous regimes of politics being very hard on certain groups of people. And I was uh, thinking, I said, you know, I'm gonna, I've got these other books that I've been writing and I'm going to put them out this following year and I want to put out this uh, uh, horse book too. But I want to... Um, I wanted to make a book where there was something smaller, because a lot of the things that I write are very large thoughts, very large sentences, as you've already noticed. And um, I wanted something for the people, so like a little raft, you know, of thoughts. Because I have a school called Bullet Kitchen, and in Bullet Kitchen we go very, very uh, extreme detail about all sorts of historical things and why people end up being the way they are and what can do about being a little bit differently culturally. And so as I speak, I, you know, when I teach, I don't teach um, really uh, with any sort of uh, syllabus or anything like that. I'm not like a scripted person. I teach what I know, and it's in my bones. And so I just speak. And when the students that signed up for my school, when it first started up, which I never thought would take off, but it did, and they came, and what they were really uh, expecting was an oral tradition that they would sit like under a shade tree and hear some wise guy, you know, wise man, speak um, wise things. And that was fine with me, except the problem is nobody could remember anything because they've been, and they're from what I'm calling now the post-literate age and, and also from cultural um, inundation of writing for so many centuries that to remember anything, that, that it was very difficult. It would just not stick. So um, after a, you know, a few sessions, I started saying, you know, I'm going to have to let these guys um, take notes if they want to take notes. So some of the people did do that, and then some didn't. But uh, some of them really took notes. I mean, they're serious, like court stenographers. I mean, unbelievable. So um, 
<laughs> uh, they wrote down all sorts of things. And anyway, uh, in, a, in the process of all that, I thought, you know what? These, these uh, people, these students, they're certainly not children of all ages. Maybe the thing that is most dear to their heart, if they will send it to me, what I said, then I will know what to put in this book. Because I first started to write the book what I wanted everybody else to hear. You see what I said, the saying, the saying, the saying. But I started teaching these enormous teachings, you know. I said, no, this is not what the people need. And so I had the students uh, write in. And so they, they wrote in their, their, their notes. Some of them sent in, uh, they you know, kind of strained their notes to find the small sayings that they kind of lived by on a daily basis or stuff that got them through hard times or things that they wanted to remember of the things we've been teaching, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then he said a lot of things. Now, I have to admit, some people weren't listening too tight, and a lot of the things they said I said were actually said by my grandfather. Some of them were said by Eleanor Roosevelt. Some were said by <laughs> Benjamin Franklin, I think. And uh, you know, various uh, Rumi, you know. And they weren't all me, you know. I said, oh, I can't put that in there, you know. And then some of them were said by them. And they forgot that I didn't say it, and I had repeated it again. But I always provenience everything, you know. But uh, so a lot of those ones weren't going in there. But then there were, uh, you know, about 5,000 different sayings. And when I got, I would get enough that where I would have like about 100 or 50 of basically the same thing. I would say, okay, here's one that's very special for everybody. And, then, and so I started, you know, kind of compiling and, and straining through that. And then some of them, they were really actually very, very inaccurate about what I was saying, but they had remembered a certain amount of it. So I had to redo them so that they actually worked. And so, you know, but uh, it was uh, the idea of taking notes. They were so funny because, you know, in this hall where we uh, have our school, it's very antique. It's an ancient, it looks like something out of the Margiana Oasis culture from Turkmenistan. You know, it's this giant adobe building with these beautiful, huge beams from the tops of the mountain that died in a forest fire, you know, standing. And it's got these Moroccan Riyadh, you know, lamps that were given to me by a friend of mine whose father was, uh, you know, a Sufi guy. And, and then we have all these carpets sent to us by, you know, Kurds and different tribal peoples. And it's quite elegant inside, but it's very old-fashioned. I mean, there's no water, you know, there's barely electricity and so on. So people sit all over. And so when they started taking notes, you know, these people were very gung-ho that everything's going to be made by hand. So they have these handmade notebooks, you know, and handmade pencils. <laughs> very beautiful. And so when they would take notes, if I said anything smart, then all of a sudden, vroom, everybody's head would go down there scratching away, you know, between their knees on their clipboards or whatever they had. In their little books, and then when they got done scratching, their head would pop up again. And if I said anything that looked significant, boom, down they go again. So I said, "What does this remind me of?" I said, "This reminds me of a big old pond full of ducks. You know how they are, uh, uh, like pintails and all the dabbling ducks. You know when they're in the pond, when they're and their tails go up in the air and they're under the water for a while. So <laughs> it looks just like that. So that I called them my little ducks." And so, you know, that's my endearment term for the people who were there who did that. So anyway, that's kind of how that came about. That's beautiful. And there's, there's a, I mean, this is a beautiful book, not just um, Thank the you. content, Thank but you. The, the imagery, your, your artwork throughout. And there's a really... Oh, thank you so much. The, the ducks thank in the you. pond. Yes, little mm-hmm. drawings on it. Yeah. yeah. Now, you know, this this capacity to retain, to remember oral teachings how you know how how can we begin to rebuild this natural human capacity well you have to come to my school 
That's all we do, man. <laughs> 15 years of working on that, basically, you know. So um, I think one of the major things, if you really want to retain things, is music. Mm. Music, uh, not necessarily pop music, but not necessarily exempting pop music either. But uh, where you store memory uh, you know, like when people start to write, I've got a saying about that in here. You know, nobody writes anything down to remember it. They write it down so they don't have to remember it. They don't store it in the computer so they they, can, they remember it. They store it there because they can know they can go back there and dial it up again. And so in an indigenous society that doesn't have any of these machines or any pencils or paper or anything like that, um, from an early age, memory is like so well developed because the part that stores um music in the mind because you know musicians have tremendous memory to to remember what word comes after next and which comes after next and which comes after next and which note after which after note and note after and so the uh the language capacity of a uh, the capacity of a people to uh, to remember something really is encoded in the language itself and most all languages based uh, initially in a really 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 long time ago on music and is extremely musical and so uh, in order to be able to get uh, a capacity to have an oral tradition, you have to actually be able to speak in a way that's worth remembering. <laughs> I know mm-hmm. it sounds kind of weird, but you mm-hmm. have to actually, you know, no one has to do anything. I'm just trying to speak English here. Okay, you can do what you want. But <laughs> if you really want to learn, you have to learn to speak an eloquence, which at this time and age is not, not hip at all. The idea now is reduction. Reduction, reduction, because everyone's trying to get where they're going to go before the world ends. Mm-hmm. And that's what's going to cause it to end. The thing is to go slow, learn things gradually, speak uh, a, a gorgeous language that is big. And people say, you're beating around the bush, just get to the point. No, no, there is no point. The point is the bush. You need to have uh, a context of gorgeousness and beauty with your language that is worth remembering. And if that doesn't come down, then no one's got anything to hear. So if there's, I mean, people are just trying to remember what they need in order to get their money out of the ATM machine, to get their, their funds put over here, to do this, to do that. They're not trying to make the world come alive. And uh, memory, like with birds, with bears, with plants, with everything, is basically the spiritual DNA of the universe. So... In a culture like what's happening now, a memory is becoming extremely rare. I mean, because you've got everything else doing your memory for you, so it's a muscle that's not being used. But if there's nothing worth remembering, the soul says, I don't care about any of this junk that you know you think is so dang important on your computer. And so it doesn't remember it, and it hates you. So to make friends with that, of course, you have to have the intercourse between humans, between plants, between animals, animals, everything between everything. And uh, so... Uh, I found, at least in my school, that I, you know, every morning when we get there, I have them listen to music from somewhere around the world that's recorded. Granted, you know, it's not them playing, but then I have them making musical instruments and learning how to play them from other countries, other places, and then singing in other languages, which actually changes the muscles on your face, but also makes you start listening to sounds that you don't normally hear. But people usually what they do when they listen to something is they bend it to make it look or sound or act or they memorize something the way they think it should have been instead of actually hearing what was said, instead of actually hearing or seeing what's there. 
And so a lot of people just go through life, you know, just kind of zooming along really fast, not seeing anything, and there's nothing to remember. So to to have the memory um, banks uh, functioning, you have to have one side working with the other side. So there has to be a left-right thing, front-back thing, top-bottom thing. And so if you learn to sing in the languages of people, especially the enemies of your ancestors, and learn to tell jokes in other languages, and learn to speak those languages so that you do not have to uh, translate them from your birth language, which is very difficult, then you'll be beginning to have a tremendous memory. I've noticed uh, people have a hard time these days learning languages uh, that are not their own languages without writing them down first. They, you know, because like I learned, I speak a number of native languages, and n- none of them I learned by writing. This is not to brag; it's just they're they're not written. There's <laughs> I mean, right. not really any known way of writing them. People just kind of make it up. And uh, as a young person, you know, you look at little, little children when they're coming out of the womb; they don't go around rehearsing meanings. They go around rehearsing sounds. You know, look at a two-year-old going, or no, or even a one-year-old. You know, they're rehearsing the musicality of what comes out of their throat, and so the musicality is where the uh, actual memory starts to uh, be encoded inside our souls. And you don't only remember in your head; you can remember in different parts of your bodies. So, yeah, I mean, to remember. Uh, is a tremendous thing is being taken away from us by modernity's uh, comfort of cyber uh, technique, you know. So you have to really actually work really hard. And working alone, you can't really do it. It has to do with other people. So that's kind of why I developed this funny old school of mine. So the people will sing, you know, in another language. And then I'll try, there are all these little subtleties in the songs, you know. They'll right away try to, you know, anglify them. And take this part out and take that part out and this other. No, no, no. You said that's got to be in there, baby. You know, <laughs> just leave that in there. This song from Mali or this song is from uh, Tene. Navajo people, you know, all that little breath in there goes like that. That's not just uh, there for no reason. That's kind of meaning. And then you start to hear that subtlety, you see. So when you start to listen to the music, even record the music, you start to say, whoa, there's a whole history of the people in here. And then you start to hear and see things that have detail that is worth remembering. Before, you just already whitewash it, already sand it off to being this real straight thing. You just shove it in the shelf. Blam! The shutters are closed and you forget all about it. It's hard to have the recall. So, I mean, like I said, it's an an enormous subject, but it can't be uh, addressed by talking about it. It has to be addressed by doing. So, yeah, there you go. I got a lot of sayings in here about that, actually, as you probably know. Yeah, yeah. Now you weren't you were you started out just with oral teachings and then you you got into writing and my understanding correct me if I'm wrong was that Robert Bly had had something to do with that. Um, well, Robert Bly, um, <laughs> Robert Bly, good old Ryan's still alive and God bless him. And um, <laughs> yeah, well the thing is is that teaching I never thought to teach in the United States. I was living in Guatemala for you know a long time and. I came away from there not and because I wanted to leave, but it's because of all the violence and the troubles and because I was marked. And when I got to the United States, I, I wasn't here. You know, was, I wrote a lot of books about this, so you can probably, people can check that out and see what happened. But at some point, you know, making a living in this country, I mean, nobody really believes anybody is really actually who they are or what they're doing. They think it's all just put on or an act or something like that. So when Robert had me, you know, at one point, actually as a psychic bodyguard, you know, because he was getting so much slack from the 
press and from different groups of people. So he had me there to protect him from getting sick because he kept getting sick from people talking about his Iron John stuff and his men's uh, movement on that. And then eventually I became a teacher in his groups, and eventually he stopped showing up and had me teaching. And I said, hey, wait a minute, let's start my own thing. But he uh, he said to me one day, he said, and actually the second conference we'd ever taught in, and he said, you know, you're going to have to write a book because no one takes you seriously, you know, speaking, because they think you're just making up all this stuff and it's just junk and to impress them. You're going to have to write a book, and if it's framed in a book, they'll read it, and then they'll take it seriously. I was so enormously incensed, you know, I remember stomped off to some river, and, you know. But, of course, as you noticed, I did do it, and uh, and it happened, and it came around. And, of course, it didn't help one bit, you know. Nobody took me seriously at all. But uh, the people that did come and the people that were heartbroken because they could feel the, the indigenous soul trying to poke through all of that kind of fascism that they'd been taught to become. That person themselves was keeping it down. And then, you know, uh, I started to write long before I ever set up my school. But once I got the school going, I was able to write for people who were really, really trying really hard to understand these things. So that really just has been an immense, merciful gift to myself. And hopefully what I was writing was useful as well. But Rescuing the Light itself, I mean, is um, some of the students felt a little uh, chagrined by my even offering it to the public. And I said, well, look, guys, these are not my big, gigantic teachings. I'm not giving away any secrets. And most of this stuff is, you know, everybody knows. And they were little, they wanted to be the only ones to have it under their pillowcase. And I said, look, man, there's 10,000 more of these where these came from. This is only just a little smattering. We can't, we can't be greedy. We've got to let the people have. But at the same time, I understood the reluctance because people who have not been trying really hard to understand the magic that's in the root of an indigenous uh, land and soul, you know, they're not going to give it uh, the respect that you do. So... I understand. But most everybody's come around to seeing that it was a, a gift, to try to give a gift in a way to the, to the people so they don't uh, die drowning in the, in the morose uh, strangeness of the times we're living in where everyone is supposed to be depressed to have an identity, you know, so. Uh, yeah. Well, it's, it certainly is a gift, and I, I hope that many people read this book to try and open their minds and hearts to, to different ways of viewing themselves in the world. Um, now the book is broken down into, into little sections or categories. And I mean, you can just open the book to anywhere and, and pull words of wisdom and, and beauty. Um, so here, I'll just start with one from the section, um, mind and hands. And the quote uh, from you, Martine is our sense of wonder has got to go into what our hands can do. It can't just stay in our heads. The hands are so holy. What they make is just as eloquent as what our tongues can speak. And when the hands are done speaking, you have a beauty you can handle. That's right. Absolutely. What more is there to say? Uh, no. Uh, well, you know, uh, in, in native societies that are intact, I'm not talking just about people who have been pushed into becoming basically immigrants in their own country. But people are still intact. Everybody knows how to do things. I mean, like in Atitlan, where I used to live in Guatemala, everyone knew how to make reed mats, which is the basic 
I mean, it's like a piece of furniture that is the most ancient um, Mayan thing. It's called pop, and that's even what they used to call their kings. Everybody knows how to make sandal. Everybody knows how to make a pot. Everyone knows how to make a basket. Everyone, all the women anyway, know how to weave. All the women know how to embroider. All the men know how to grow corn, how to make uh, hoes, you know, to, to farm. Everyone knows how to make a canoe. Everyone knows how to row a canoe. Everyone knows how to do all those things. But that doesn't mean all those people do all those things all the time. There are some people who make really good canoes. And some people make really good sandals. And some people make really good um, pop, what do you call it, you know, reed mats. And so on and so on and so on. And some people, some women are just unbelievable weavers and others are unbelievably incredible embroiderers. And, and that goes for absolutely everything. Some people are tremendous prayer makers with their words, which is considered an art, you see. And so in any village, everybody knows how to do everything. So they have this enormous respect for the people that know how to do it really better than anybody else. It's not like they say, oh, who does he think he is? So they always go there, you know, and hire them to make them their outfit or make this, even though they themselves know how. I, when I came back from Guatemala, I grew up in a town in, in New Mexico, to, to backtrack, was very, very similar also. They also, everybody knew how to do everything. So, but in uh, non-indigenous society, which I think, you know, Europeans used to have, you know, you know three, four thousand years ago, but people, all of a sudden, everything is specialized. Only This guy only knows how to do this, and this person knows how to do that, and a lot of people don't know how to do nothing. Don't know how to tie a knot, know how to pick up a load, don't know how this works, don't know how that works. So the the hands, I would say, they're weeping, you know, because our hands, they are so eloquent. Like people who are, who are deaf, you know, or people who are blind, you know, they know how to touch things with their hands or sign with their hands. And dancers know how to move their hands. And so the hand with its opposable thumb is a language, you see. And so when the, um, uh, native people where I come, you know, my basic other things I think come from, they have uh, the idea that they, they would use this term, from the, from the voice of your mouth, of your, of your lungs, and the, the product of your opposable thumb. So when you make an offering for the holies, the only thing the holies don't have is our voice and our capacity for language and metaphor and abstract thinking and this wonderful hand that makes beauty. So the capacity to uh, have something in the hand is also goes right with your mouth. You know, like I'm a guitarist too. You know, I used to be under a different name. I was a known person, you know, played a lot of music. And they have a... I would sometimes be trying to learn some lick or something thing that I just couldn't get, and I would finally be able to do it in my mouth, you know, and all of a sudden, if I could do it in my mouth, I could do it with my hands, and you know, and I could play the whole thing. If I could do it with my hand, I realized I could also do it with my mouth. And this has been lost, this connection between the hand and the voice. And so, like, ladies, when they would weave, they would weave certain designs, and certain songs would come out of their hands and would come out of their mouth. And when the Mayans used to make paper out of the mulberry bark, you know, they used to pound it, and they hammer exactly like a silversmith hammers uh, metal. 
silver and copper and gold, you know, they would hammer out with these uh, stone mallets on these logs that had a watermark marked on them. And that had a certain rhythm that you were required to do. And then you sang a certain song with it to somebody else who was doing a different song, the opposite direction, so that the paper, when it came out, actually had this song hammered in to the form that the paper took, which is what they used to wear for clothing. Everyone thinks Mayans uh, wove. Well, they wove a lot, but they mostly wore paper clothing, just like the Polynesians. And so this uh, capacity with the hands and the mouth, I believe that the people, when they lose the capacity of their hands to, to make beauty and to make things, they lose us so much. Modern life says, oh, if you work with your hands, you mean, oh, well, that's just for old folks, you know, to keep them busy so they don't lose their minds in the, in the nursing home. Or if you work with your hands, it's because you haven't quite made it to the corporate ladder where you just sit on your hands and look out there a point or just, you know, do a computer. And that's just not the case, the nobility. Let me tell you nothing. There, there was um, a king in um, Scythia, in what is now the area of uh, basically where Kazakhstan goes into the other side of Ukraine, and um, in, in the area of the Bashkiri. And his name was Ateas. He was a Scythian king. And the Greeks had sent a whole bunch of guys to try to talk him into letting them invade the land and put this big statue of Hercules and all this. And they were looking for this king to talk to him. And they came upon this man combing out his this beautiful horse, you know, who didn't have his shirt on. He had big long hair and a big mustache. And his uh, pants covered with blue buckskin, you know, covered with a uh, gold, little gold deer, you know. And he was combing his horse. And they said, excuse me, sir, we'd like to talk to King Ateas. He said, what do you want to talk to him about? I said, well, we're not going to tell you. He said, I am King Ateas. He said, what do you mean? King Ateas combs out his own horse? Yeah, and I milk my own cows and I milk my own sheep. And I also make love to my own wife. What's it to you? He says, well, our king has people to do that for him. I said, well, he's a lazy bastard, you know. We do our own work. Even though I'm a king, I love my animals. I love my horses. I don't let anybody touch these horses at me. So the idea of people actually working all of a sudden becomes demonized, that your hand is some kind of, oof, just some, something that you do to make yourself feel good, like your, your craft, you know, or something like it's, uh, it's not important. It's just as important as speaking eloquence. And if you don't have that, you don't have no memory either. That's going back to your original point, you see. So that hand are very, very important. Any, anybody from the old days will say, oh, where do you go? You go talk to the woodsman or you go talk to the carpenter. You want to hear what happened to the history. It's because they can remember everything according to how it's made. When I first came back from Guatemala, I love leather. And, you know, all the vegans are going, ah, I hate this man, you know, he eats meat. You know. So, yeah, but I only eat meat that I love. I only eat animals that I've known. I only eat the ones with the sweet eyes. I don't just have them lined up in these pens and these horrible deaths. Everything has beauty and grief in it. And so I love the old buckskin uh, shirts that the old Indian guys I used to know wore. So I wanted to have someone that came back from Guatemala, and so I would make them. And whenever I had a terrible problem, I wouldn't know exactly how to make the cuts, but I would sit for days trying to figure out how to cut this hide. It had taken me two weeks to tan, uh, or actually three hides. And when I finally made the cuts, and when I finally made the sewing, and when I finally had it done, my problem would have been resolved <laughs> because it was from one process to the next. From one process to the next, my memory would I would actually sew one thing to the next. I would be able to connect one thing from the past with one thing from the future. And occasionally, my problem would not be solved by making a coat. But when I was done, I still had a coat and a really cool one, too. So my problem turned into a coat. So I wear my problem around as beauty. Who cares? But So your hand can make something 
that your voice can also participate in, and that creates, uh, that's basically culture. And when you lose that, you lose a lot. You lose so much, you know. And there's little bits and pieces of the musicians who use their hands. And, but nowadays, everything, you know, is so uh, automated. I mean, it's just unbelievable. So our hands are crying. They're weeping. That's why in, in my school in the morning, it's all lectures, all me rapping, people learning, people singing. Afternoons, all making, all learning the spiritual ancestry of all the things they are making and the doing of it with, uh, you know, an offering. And they're quite good at it. It's amazing. You have people who've never done anything in their whole life all of a sudden try to spin a thread, you know, made, <laughs> and they're good at it. And they, you should see the look on their face. They're like, oh, my God, it's happening. It's happening. And they can't stop, you know. It's like <laughs> really funny. I could tell you a lot of stories about that. But yeah, it sounds lovely. like a wonderful place of learning and, and uh, connection. You know, uh, what you were just speaking of reminds me, it brings my eye to one of the quotes from the section titled Flight. And you say, yeah, think of how far civilized people have fled from being truly intact just to escape the burden of having to live and die in a worthy way. Right. Truly. Just think. I mean, that is the gigantic study of a lifetime to see what all that is because the the flight is the fleeing away from intactness as an indigenous being and when i say indigenous i'm not talking about uh abnakis or you know anishinaabek which of course are indigenous but i'm talking about indigenousness in a bigger sense and when you have contrived civilizations have contrived to not have to be beholding to the originations of anything. They don't have to ask permission of any of the things they take out of the ground or off the tree or off the plant or even to plant it or even to live there. And when they also don't see their ancestors as being human, but being plants and being animals and being stones and being rivers and being from those things directly descended, when you get a civilization that says you don't owe anything to anybody, you don't have to give anything back, and you're not from there, you're not descended from a rock, you know, you're just descended from Abraham. Then what happens is the people then, they're fleeing. That's a way of doing flight. They may be standing perfectly still, but they're, culturally they're fleeing because they're pushing the earth away from them at the speed of light. And so all of the inventions that are made to give comfort in order to assuage the pain of the grief of the loss of that, because the soul just loves being connected to all those things. And it doesn't like what's going on. And so you feel pain, and that pain is depression, and that depression is medicated, or people buy a boat and go do this, or they go do that, or on a vacation to do this, and, and then it falls short of that, and then they kill themselves, or they don't. It's all nonsense. The idea is, is that you shouldn't be fleeing in the first place, but stay with it and try to learn what you can give and be a small being. So civilization makes it really easy for you to flee, but uh, staying in a place in order to give a gift to the holy and nature, as I call it, it's not hard, but you actually have to do it. You can't like just hope it happens to you. <laughs> you know? It's like not going to fall out of the sky. You know, It's not a program. It can't be done. You can't just go to a workshop and get it. You know, it's not a mining situation because everything in modern culture is mined, whether you like it or not. I mean, agriculture is mining, going and getting what you want is mining, everything's mining. And so you've got to stop mining and start 
making something live, start making beauty, you know, be a solid person. Yes, thank you. Now, before I, I come to the next quote, I just want to remind our live audience that you can put in your questions for Martine Prechtel on the Q&A tab. So if you go down to the bottom tab on your screen, not the chat, but the Q&A tab, and you can type your questions in there in, in the last 15 minutes or so, we'll, we'll be reading some of those out to Martine. Now, I, I love the teachings around grief and praise. And a lot of what you talk about is, is our inability to, to gr either grieve or praise. So if I can, I, I, I want to come to um, some of your quotes on grief. And the sure. first one is is just a really simple one, but it, there's a lot to unpack, I think. And it's all dishonorable behavior is an <clears throat> abbreviation of grief. Right. That's really a powerful thing to say. And it's also a little flippant to say because it's a large thought. But dishonorable behavior is actually very hip right now. It's really, uh, you know, become very hip to be, uh, to get away with things get away with life, to get away with, uh, uh, you know, corporate uh, malfeasance with money or uh, good business practices considered not leaving yourself open instead of giving away everything you've got. It's getting more and more and more and leaving everybody on the floor of Amazon, you know, uh, with the least amount of uh, uh, expectancy for the future and just, you know, going on and on and on and drilling the ground out. So... Dishonorable behavior, as far as grief goes, it means that there's uh, what it's trying to say, I believe, if you would like to hear, is that deep inside uh, our souls, as we said earlier, there, we know that we're not like that, and we're, we're not born like that, and we're not meant to be like that. There's a very good, um, you know, another quote about that, and there, where, you know, where we're not really uh, in, deep inside us want to be that kind of person, and so there's this huge grief about that. And what happens with grief is grief is not sorrow. And I wrote a whole book on this called Grief, you know, the spell of rain and dust. It's not sorrow. It's not weeping. Grief is the beauty that fills the sorrow, that fills the loss, that fills the, the terror of having lost something. People are really hip on being grief-stricken, but what they're doing is not grief-stricken. All of that stuff is, is just uh, finally, for the first time in their life, they've been allowed to weep, so it's a new experience. But that has nothing to do with grief. Grief is what you do to rebuild and to make life happen again. And so when the inability to uh, like destroy something and then realize how much destruction you've done and to grieve for it by making something beautiful and better out of that grief, then what you do is you become a violent person. So violence, most of violence, and dishonorable behavior. All wars are based on the fact that the grief from the previous war has not been metabolized into beauty, and therefore we have to have another war to fill the hole of the loss of the previous one. So dishonorable behavior, as in the political uh, echelons that we have seen in the last you know, four and ten years, um, you know, all of that is just uh, this unmetabolized grief. It's an incapacity with the standing still and said, you know what, this was not a good idea. This was not good, and I did not begin this, but I'm going to, instead of saying but, 
I'm not only going to apologize, but I'm going to make life different. It's like right now, a lot of people, after all of these COVID shutdowns and things like that, they say, I want to get life back to normal. I say, you better not. <laughs> you better not. You better make it different than it was. Otherwise, you're going to have more of the same thing. That's where it came from to begin with. You know, you make a different life, a different way, a different way of seeing and understanding. And then grief, instead of understanding the grief as being the sorrow of loss and weeping for people dying, I mean, that, of, of course, of course you weep for that. That that's, goes without saying, but that has nothing to do with grief. Grief is what you do when you're done doing that, all right? It's what you make out of your culture. It's the beauty that you make from that loss and what you fill that hole with and what you grow with it. So, <clears throat> you know, if you're going to have a loss that you're going to be terrified of, then that's going to be, become solidified and it becomes, you know, an illness inside your body or a psychological illness where every day when you go past that area, you're going to avoid it, you know, because it's all of a sudden full of pain instead of having them metabolized by grief into something that actually gives life. So dishonorable behavior when, uh, you know, you'll have people who, you know, sell each other out or betray each other or people who say things of mine, you know, in a cocktail party, you ask them not to give away just because it makes them feel powerful. That dishonorable behavior doesn't come from them being evil people. It comes from their incapacity to feel uh, alive and well and worthy because they are so smashed down by the, the losses that they've had that they don't, have not learned by with their hands and their voice to make a beauty that will feed something besides themselves in a time beyond their own that they will never see, which is the unpopular modern part. In other words, you cannot become a human and work for the time that we're in. You have to work for the time you won't see. And that's what makes you a human worth descending from in this time. It makes you a human worth something in this time. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a strong bag of nails to try to swallow for people who think they just got to get what they want and then die before the whole thing blows up. But uh, I, I think that's what makes it all blow up is trying to get what you want all the time. And, and that's what makes the atomic bomb and the, uh, mass destruction and all of this sickness in the first place. So I think if people could, uh, you know, actually see the joy, the beauty, the incredibleness of being. I mean, actually, after all, we're only a little pile of ash and water stuck together so we can kiss and argue. You know, I mean, wow, how could it happen? You know, <laughs> we're allowed to be here for this small amount of time, you know, and to have the, the majesty of seeing the sun come up more than once and have our children at a fire and drink some tea, you know. So. If that's not able to be uh, big, then you have to build big buildings. You have to do, uh, rip other people off. You have to take off their land. You have to do this. You have to do that in order to feel like you're, quote, somebody because now you're powerful because a lot of people cringe when you walk in the room. Well, that's nowhere for me, you know. So I think uh, dishonorable behavior is uh, is people who have been uh, become a victim, but they are now the victimizers, and that's basically the history of the world for the last two thousand and a half years. So, you know, I'm trying to, in my tiny, tiny little, you know, squeaky little ant way, trying to say that you don't really have to be that way, you know. Yes. Now the counterpoint is praise. And in, in your yeah. section, reverence, wonder, sense of humor, admiration, you say this, and I really think this is, is so simply put and beautiful, and I'd love to hear you unpack it a bit more. And the quote is, praise is a natural human impetus. If you can't praise, somebody taught that to you. Yes. Well, that's the same as the other quote. 
dishonorable behavior is all a matter of you know, grief on the tablet, because grief and praise are one and the same thing. Grief is a praise of life. You will not f- uh, feel the loss of anything unless you are absolutely in love with something. Grief is not about when you don't get what you want. Grief is when you lose what you love. That's two different things, my friend. And so praise is a way to to give life to things. And so grief is a way to praise having been given the life enough to feel the loss of having lost. And so praising is, uh, you know, people will praise in modern culture, but they only praise them if they want more out of them or if they want to get them off into bed or if they want this or they want that. If they want something, they're praised. But praise is not about that. I mean, I have a lot of horses, and I don't have, like, trucaners and quarter horses and thoroughbreds. I've got Spanish barbs, man, and these horses don't put up with no nonsense. You know, they, <laughs> they know a fake when they see one. And if you're teaching, uh, trying to ask them if they will allow you to ride them when they're young, you have to know how to praise them, and it damn well better not be empty praise. It better be how beautiful it looks between their ears and how that caramel color just above their coronet is and how their hoof just looks like agates coming after a rain in the desert. That has to be real, man. It can't be like, you know, oh, I'm just saying this so you do what I want you to do. You can't just say something so somebody will give you a kiss or somebody will give you the bigger bank account or, the, you know, the boss will raise. I mean, it's, praise has got to be there. And you've got to praise your plants, you've got to praise the holy, you've got to praise the sun, you've got to praise everything. And that is what is known as eloquence. Everybody else says, oh man, that's a big waste of time. That's just a, that's just a bunch of chumps talking, man. And, oh yeah, they cut everything down to computer ease, emoji, you know, emojiosis. And you have um, no praise. Nobody is praised. It's just all veneer. So praising is not the counterpoint of grief, grief is praise. They're one and the same damn thing. They're identical. Because if you praise and at the end of your praise you're not weeping, you didn't praise. And if you have grief and at the end of your grief you're not praising the the life that you've been given in order to feel the grief, then you didn't grieve. Wow. Wonderful. Thank you. Now, yeah, I, I, we've got to... That'll gotta, teach you to ask a question. <laughs> <laughs> you know me, I'm always going to say something. <laughs> I don't want to feel... I don't want to let you down, you see. I don't want you to feel cheated. So oh, I give you all I can. Far, you're far from letting <laughs> us down. You're far from letting us down. Now, we, we've got a few questions already from the audience, and I'll, I'll get to one or two of those right now, and I'll remind right. everybody, if you want to put Lovely. your questions from Martine into the Q&A tab, please do. There's one from um, Carol, and uh, Carol says, heartfelt thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today and always. I would like to hear more around the word beauty. Beauty? Well, you better buy this book. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot about beauty in there. Yeah. Well, beauty is very necessary. And, you know, I don't know, Carol, but I would imagine that Carol loves beauty and you know it's a strange thing in english the word beauty you know because it actually comes from the word holy uh if you look into the etymology of words you come up with some amazing things why did we give up thinking that you know that's pretty good you know and like sometimes you see a grizzly bear you guys in uh you know british columbia know about grizzly bears you know and brown bears and, and grizzly bears are beautiful even when they're coming after you 
you know, they have that bristle on their back, and they just have that snarl and that bad smell coming out of their mouth and those big old claws, you know. All the thing of natural world is beautiful. And the thing about human beings, they're the only thing on earth that's really actually capable of not being beautiful. But they are also capable of beauty. So one of the obligations of a human being is to make beauty, but not flippant beauty, not the veneer beauty, not cosmetic beauty. But uh, there's a quote in here you probably read already. It says, beauty is not the way you look, but the way you look at the world. It says that right in their song. And so when you're an indigenous society, I mean, it's like the idea of a rich person dressing down is anathema to them. It's like a horrible idea. Everybody dresses up. And not dresses up like junk that you buy in the boutique. They all weave their own clothing, and it's all got a meaning, and it's all written on them. And it's very beautiful. But you would never think of going anywhere looking bad even in your rags they're beautiful <laughs> it's just amazing everybody is into beauty and the idea of not beauty you see it does not come from indigenousity so the style of doing something matters and how you do something matters in other words you don't ever want to do something just to get it done i tell you uh, miss carol one time when i was a boy I really was a boy. I wasn't always an old guy. I was a wise guy. I act like it since I was two. But when I was younger, I had a really, 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 really incredible horse named Amariento, which the next book, by the way, uh, is about. And he could fly over 45 miles an hour. He was a tiny little horse. And everyone would laugh at me when I'd race against anybody. And I never lost a race. And one time I was showing off, and there was a lot of people in this place, and I rode very fast, and I didn't remember that there was a, uh, you know, a 17th century irrigation canal underneath all of these big reeds. And so I was riding back to my horse trailer after demonstrating this, and, um, you know, riding, and whoop, I disappeared from the sky and fell into this uh, seven-and-a-half-foot ditch. And luckily it didn't break my neck. The horse was knocked out. I was knocked out cold. But the horse got up before I did, apparently, and didn't put a hole through me with his hoof, thank God. And he ran off. And when I came to, there was this old cowboy guy who had gone off and got my horse. He saw what happened. But nobody else saw. All they saw me is doing a Houdini trick, flying through the air, jumping this ditch, and then all of a sudden, you know, just dropped out of the sky. So they didn't know what happened. So he grabs me and he pulls me to my feet and he says, you know what, son? There's two kinds of riders. Don't worry about it. The first kind are the ones that fall off. And the second ones are the ones that are going to fall off. So I've got to tell you one thing. is that If you're going to fall off when you know it's coming, just make sure that it's beautiful. Because God is fed by the way you fall off. And so you've got to make sure even your trajectory feeds God. So that you're hitting the ground is beautiful. And I tell you, that was one beautiful trajectory. <laughs> he said, and I never did get that guy's name, and he disappeared. And I got on my horse all wobbly. I was, you know, half, you know, pretty dazed. And I rode out there, and all the people were cheering. They thought it was a Houdini thing. It was just an accident. But the beauty of something feeds, no matter what you do, even if you fail at feeding the holy, long as the failure is a beautiful failure. Hey, okay, man. That's good. Beautiful, truly beautiful. Now, there's a there's a, qu- a question from uh, Lucia, or Lucia, Lucia. I'm not sure the correct pronunciation. Right. And uh, Lucia says, I could listen to you talk all day, 
the wisdom feels deeply nutritious. Well, <laughs> the body. Ask my wife about it. <laughs> 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 yeah. No, that's lovely. Thank you very much. I'm sorry. I'm too joking. I'm from the res, you know, it's a horrible habit. Oh, we love it. We love it. She says, will you speak of the body? And, and Lucia, Lucia, there is a, a section in the book, uh, Rescuing the Light on this. She asks, will you speak of the body and how to be in yes. relationship with the body? Yeah, no, uh, Rescuing the Light. I mean, uh, the, the, the real reality of this book is there, there isn't really any categories. <laughs> They're there for a teaching purpose so that you will think of those categories in regard to what is being said there, but they actually cross over all over the place. There's much about the body. The human body, of course, is not the only body that there is. And the body uh, of the earth, as far as indigenous thought that I come from anyway, are one and the same. And so that's a a gigantic subject matter. But the thing is, it's not separate from anything else. It's the, it's, well, you're inside a gigantic body when you're living on the earth. But most people who don't live really in any sort of natural construct don't really know they're walking through their blood veins, you know, when they're riding their horse up in the royal or up a, a coolie. And by the same token, the holy is riding through your veins too when you're asleep and you're dreaming. So when you're going to heal uh, a body, a human body is never, has not been made, not been created, not been evolved to be totally healthy. It is always just a little kitty wumpus, man, a little throchi mochi, just a little bit this way, a little bit that way. And the reason for that, they say indigenously, is so that people will constantly need each other. So they have to help each other to get this way and to go that way. And so the same goes for the earth. The earth is always just a little kitty wampus. And so they've got to have the people go to the shrines and feed with their rituals all the beauty that they can make for Carol and let the world jump back up again because the earth's body, when you heal that earth's body, it heals the people's body, it heals the bear's body, it heals the whale's body, and help God help us all the ocean of all things. The main body of all bodies is the ocean. So... I could go on really heavily because, I mean, I teach so much about this. But the body is not a separate thing. It's like, okay, okay, we have the mind, and then we have the body, and then we have the spirit. No, we don't got that, man. You know, it's all the same. It's all the same. It's not all one, but it's all this gigantic uh, knowledge of living. The, I have a saying about this, too. This is about uh, when a, a trauma has happened to an earth, it, it doesn't leave when the effects of that trauma leave. Like when you get sick in the body, like for instance, if someone shoots you, you have a bullet, I've had flak and bullets in my body, you know, and the bullets remove the, the, the fright and the sickness of the event having taken place or even having gotten a sickness doesn't leave when the symptoms leave. They're still there. That's why medicine men and medicine women, they pull out the fright bullet, as we call it. And But they can't do it by themselves. So what the body does by nature, and so does the earth, is that it molts. It molts off that, that piece of history in such a way, like a grief, metabolizes that moment, that frozen, petrified moment, into something that gives life so that you no longer have the grief bullet, or you, you might say the ghost bullet, or the ghost sickness, or the ghost COVID in your body anymore, and it leaves. And that's what's happening to the world right now in the earth is that the ghost 
the spirit of what has happened has not been yet metabolized ritually and spiritually by the people, and so the earth is still sick with it. And so the people, you know, they're killing themselves. They've had what, in the United States, they've had 100,000, you know, drug overdoses in the last year. You know, it's way, way up because the people are just, you know, they've lost it because the ground itself is ill. And so the people, if they could... uh, with their music, with their beautiful language, with the beauty of the way they walk, the beautiful the way they live, all these different things, instead of trying to get away from what was, try to make it live again instead of sitting around moaning and groaning about it or making, you know, like, oh, I'm so significant because I was sick or because I lost my husband. No, we make life live again. So the earth itself comes back alive. It comes back alive, you come back alive. But let me tell you, it's a lot bigger subject than that, and so it's kind of spurious for me to go on and on about that in five minutes. So I apologize for you having tried. But in Rescuing the Law, I talk quite a bit about it, but I also talk a lot about it in every other book I have, but it's just hidden in, in, in narrative, you know. So Someday, I'm, I'm in two years, in two, two, uh, 2023, I'm coming out with one be more for you, I think. So anyway, I hope that was helpful. Thank you. Thank you. There's a question from Alicia, and she's she's asking about something you mentioned earlier on um, when you were speaking. She says, can you expand on the phrase you said that in our current culture, people are supposed to be supposed to be depressed to have an identity? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've got a section on that, too. <laughs> <laughs> Under depression. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, depression is status jewelry now, man. If you're not depressed, you can't be a musician. You can't be an artist. You can't be anything. As a matter of fact, people aren't depressed, acting depressed. You know? I mean, depression is basically when you've uh, decided to be uh, an enemy with yourself, you know? Let's see. Let me look this up. I've got something cool here. I mean, there is no word for depression in uh, native languages. You know, you don't have that. All you have is uh, grief. It says, um, say, here's, here's one for you. You can definitely think yourself into a hole, but you can't think yourself out. To get out of that hole, you have to bow to a deeper and older mind than the one you used to think yourself into that pit. A mind who can teach you how to become a seed, how to root yourself firmly into the hole by learning all you can about the hole you're stuck in. How to sprout yourself back into the world is a plant from that seed. To make a plant whose seeds itself can sprout a time of hope beyond our own. That way, you're inside the hole and outside the hole simultaneously, and you're not depressed. Right? So that's, that's uh, what we have to say about that a little bit, because nowadays, you know, it's just so hip to be to have a sickness of depression it's not that people uh, don't experience that but you can't meditate you can't medicate depression you ha- it has to be metabolized because depression is an incapacity to not be violent with grief and it's just, uh, self-inflicted instead of being, you know and if it's not self-inflicted then it's exported onto the world in bad global politics and uh, business practices so yeah i mean sorry i'm kind of a heavy dude but you know, the the thing is people are actually beautiful, amazing beings and they and they can they can heal. Everything wants to heal. But some people don't want to heal because they get a bigger 
identity out of having something wrong with them. So we have to go deeper. And if you go into the histories of things, all even the histories of the words that you use in order to, to describe yourself or your situation, it means that your life is too small. You gotta go outside, man. You gotta go see other things. You gotta go far away from anything you ever know. Because you figure if everything you've done and, and lived is not working, something else. But you're not gonna get it by going farther and farther west and in Western expansionism. See what's already there. What's so beautiful, you know. But it's a lot. It's easy for me to say that, you know. And people get very angry. But I think uh, the main thing is to know that if you're worthy. If you feel worthy because you can feed the holy in the world, you don't feel depressed. It doesn't matter what prison you're stuck in. It doesn't matter what hospital you're in or how sick you are. If you're feeding, uh, if you learn to make beauty and you make that beauty under all conditions, then, you know, you're happy where you are. It's not about people getting what they want and being happy anyway. So when it's not either one or the other, then your body jumps up and lives again, man. You know, well, it's a big subject. Thank you. We have we have time for one more question from our live community here, and this one is from Paka, and Paka. All right, cool. Paca. And and uh, uh, the Paka says immense gratitude to you, Martin Martin, for your teachings on grief and praise. It changed okay. my relationship to grief and thus my life. For those of us burdened and disconnected by modern society. What are ways we can, as you said, get in touch with our own indigeneity to relate to the world in the right way? Well, I hate to tell you, the best way to uh, approach that is to reconcile yourself to the fact that you have to bestow it on somebody else and that you will never have it. To give it to, uh, be willing to bestow what you never had received and to be willing to bestow what you never will receive by learning everything you can about it and bestowing it on a generation that's beyond your own, maybe not even born yet, that's what gives you the indigenousity now. In other words, if you're willing not to have it, if you're willing not to mine and not to um, need something like that, when you make every effort in order to make the beauty rise and roll and find out what that really actually means and should look like and say, you know, I'm the way I am, but I want to give this to somebody who hasn't shown up yet. Then there's some brain cells, there's some soul cells, there's some things in the road that you're on and in that grows from the willingness to do that. And then you become a person worth descending from. You see, because your ancestry says, oh, I'm a Celt, or I'm a this, or I'm a that. Well, that's all, those are all fabrications, by the way. If you look into the histories, it gets into a, you become more and more and more of a mixed form, which is what civilization doesn't want. It's always looking for purity. But you don't want purity. What you want is to be able to make a future for somebody that is a now, like our now, right now, and that you as a person will become worth descending from instead of trying to find out what you're descended from. So you get close to an indigenousness. It's not being close to, uh, you know, nativeness or anything like that. That's a, that's, a, that's a political use of the word, which is fine, too. It's a other matter. But to find your indigenosity, you can't have it because the thing that wants it is the one that kills it. 
with the indigenousity already knows who it is, is already close to it, is already there. And so that being is busy hiding from the one that wants to find it. You see, that's the hard thing to learn. And it's not, not really comical, but you've got to learn how to laugh because the more you chase it, the more it runs away. So the idea is to make a feast for it. i got some great sayings for this in here, by the way. If you look into them, they're just perfect. You can see them over and over again. And you make a feast for it, and then you allow this being that you're talking about that you want to get closer to, to eat without possessing it, without taking it, without roping it around the neck and dragging it home. Because the thing that wants it is the one that wants to kill it, because it wants to have it like a mind mineral instead of allowing it to run free. And if you approach things like that, then you will get closer and you'll become a servant of the greatness of the holy in nature. But then, maybe not. But then, trying and failing in a beautiful way is worth doing because it also feeds the holy in nature. So it's okay to fail trying. It's okay. I say, it's okay to fail trying. Just make sure your failures are beautiful. (laughs) <laughs> you guys, I can't hear them laughing. Okay, let's do that. <laughs> I have to laugh <laughs> so, on behalf of everybody. Yeah, you go. Hopefully, I, you know, <laughs> I feel sad I can't uh, kiss them all on the head and sign their books right there like I used to. But oh. anyway, it's not so bad. A little bit of something. Hopefully, someday soon that will be our reality. Go will. Uh, yeah, Martine, if you have time for one more audience question, I don't want to assume. <laughs> There's one no, that no. came in. Yeah. Okay. There's one that came in from Neil, and I think this is really worthy of addressing. Um, he says, Thank you for sharing your beauty. I am a Nahia Cree man from Alberta. Many- All right, Nahia. Well, I've got blood there too. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I do. I do. And Nahia, Nahia. He's what they call uh, the mountain Cree, you know? Yeah. Oh. Not the swampy Cree, prairie Cree. Okay. So he says, many indigenous people of this land are deeply wounded and lost. Can you share any insight for the indigenous people of this land? Well, I'm presuming he's talking so much about the, you know, the boarding school travesties and all that sort of thing. But, uh, boy, I tell you, Brother Nakia, (laughs) that's like a question that uh, is so immense. I don't want to dishonor the a response by making it too small or too short. But I will say that um, to remember that uh, what made you and all your ancestors and brother and sister and all the people indigenous is not only coming down the ancestral line, but that ancestral line came right straight out of the ground, out of the rivers, out of the trees, out of the salmons, out of the mountains, out of the otters, out of the moose, out of the everything that's there. That's where it came from. And let me tell you, it's still there. It's still there. And that's the one that knows how to heal everything. That's the one that has the power to go in the body and sing itself back to life. And like, for instance, you take a plant that's from the ancestral knowledge and you eat that plant and you take the, another plant that it grows with and you powder it and you put it on the outside. The one plant's looking for the other plant. Each one has half a song. And together when they meet each other, they have a full song. When they have that full song, that's when the plant from the inside looking for the one on the outside is going through all the different parts of your body. And the one from the outside is looking for the one on the inside looking, going through all the parts of your body. 
They're going to heal if you give it a chance. It's the natural world that will give you that. It's not going to be any white man law. It's not going to be winning back land. It's not going to be winning recognition, which is just fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. It's good to have it. But do not confuse that you have done anything like that. It's the land itself and where you come from. That's the one that has all the capacity to give you everything that was always yours and that you are. I think wants to come right in and say hi. The the medicine that comes from inside us and the medicine that comes from outside, when they're incomplete, but when they meet, they form a full song. So that's what I got to say about that in short shrift. But let me tell you, there's a lot more could be said. But all blessings on you and your people. No, no, yeah. And if you know Margaret Cardinal, say hello to her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they know each other. I imagine they do, yeah. Martin, um, I know you're on, on the phone, so you can't see the comments, but I'll just give you a few so you know how much everyone in the Banyan community who's here live is appreciating it. Joseph says, love your work. What a blessing. Denise thank says, you. thank you so much. My soul aches for this wisdom. Cold drink on a hot day. Blessings to you. <laughs> good deal. <laughs> that sounds good. I could use that now. Man. <laughs> and Paka, who sent in the question before, says, wow, mind blown in the best way with a heart. Thank you so much. Good deal. Okay. And Finally, Susan says, thank you, Martine, for your words today and for encouraging us to make beauty and give gifts. Yeah, definitely. You know, that's the first saying in the book. It says, you know, a lot of times it's hard to remember stuff, man. You're, the, the empire is breathing on you. It says, says this is the first saying, and I'll let it off with this. You say, under blessings and spirituality, it says, when you can't remember what to do, what to say or what the deeper teachings are. When all else escapes you, just remember this. Always feed what needs feeding. Always make beauty. That's the first thing that's on there. So. Martin Prechtel, everybody. Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for letting me join you and terrorize the poor Canadian public, you know, with my crazy words, but <laughs> do what we can. Yeah. And uh, we're really looking, or I'm really looking forward, as I know the whole community will be, to our follow-up interview on, on your other book, new book, The Mare and the Mouse, Stories of My Horses. Well, I tell you what, when you read that, you're going to wonder about my sanity as a young man. I did so many crazy things on horseback. But when you get the second one, you know for sure I was totally out there. But I loved those horses so much, I just had to write and give them a gift for, for it, you know. And for the people in these times to read something that's not just make them sad because there's a lot of funny things in there. So I hope you love it. I'm really looking forward to opening that book and reading what you've written. Um, just a reminder to everybody that you can find the Banyan podcast anywhere that podcasts are cast, Spotify, uh, YouTube Music, Apple Music, or if you Google uh, Banyan Books in Conversation podcast, you'll find a variety of websites where the podcast can be found and also on our YouTube channel, Banyan Books YouTube channel. Um, our website is banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com. And we've been here today with Martin Prechtel. His website is martinprechtel.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-P-R-E-C-H-T-E-L. 
www.martinsmith.com. And again, Martin, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you so much to Banyan Books and yourself, Mr. Ross, and um, all the people that come to, to listen a bit. And I hope they love this book and it does them some good. It's a little raft, you know, to keep you from drowning. All oh, blessings on you and all of you. Conversation, a podcast with Banyan Books and Sound.